have a Bible, and let's turn to Luke chapter 22. There will be a a selection of texts today, but Luke 22 we'll keep coming back to. Uh, Last year we had a members meeting in which uh, the elders approached the congregation about uh, moving to a weekly observation of of the Lord's Supper uh, we, we so enjoyed the blessings that come with eating together at the Lord's Supper uh, that we wanted your input on, on what it would look like to share in these blessings more often. And we wanted to test our observations uh, in the Scriptures with your observations in the Scriptures. Uh, and as usual, your reception was patient and your input was, was val- valuable. At the same time, the more we discuss the Lord's Supper with you, the more we realize you know, that many of us have lacked uh, direct teaching on the Lord's Supper. Uh, after converting to Christ, you know, some of us just kind of went with the flow of, of the Christian faith, and we eat and we, we drink, uh, but without really knowing why we do these, these things. Others of us came from religious backgrounds that, that differed on the Lord's Supper, um, sometimes in significant ways and sometimes... Uh, to the point of of great theological error. Uh, Now you understand the gospel of grace more clearly, but but you still wonder, you know, how that relates to the Lord's Supper, and uh, especially when the Lord's Supper over time becomes kind of mechanical and and ritualistic for you. Being Baptist may not have helped you either. You know, if if your experience has been anything like mine, Baptists can spend so much time talking about what things are not, talking about what the Lord's Supper is not, that you really wonder whether there's any meaning left at all. Over time, at Redeemer, you know, we've tried more positively to, to fill the Supper with meaning from the Scriptures. So on Lord's Supper Sunday, whatever the sermon text, uh, we try to link that biblical truth to the Gospel and then that gospel truth to, to how it connects to the Lord's Supper in particular before we, we come and take together. Over the next few weeks, my goal is to show you how rich the Supper truly is. Some of its richness we can discern in the, diver, in the diversity of titles given to the Lord's Supper throughout church history. The breaking of bread. It's an allusion to Jesus revealing himself in the breaking of bread with his disciples in Luke 24, and then on into Acts and the early church's table fellowship with one another. The Eucharist. It's just another word for thanksgiving, which which we all owe to God for our great salvation. Holy Communion. Communion, a word that reflects on our union with Christ and on the supper, uniting the church into one body. The Lord's table. It's an image from 1 Corinthians 10.21, reminding us that we no longer fellowship with the demonic system of evil. We fellowship with the Lord. We eat at His table. All these terms highlight different facets of of what we might more generally call the Lord's Supper, and and I hope we come to grasp these riches more deeply. Another historical note here, if you were to ask um, what components are essential to having a local church, Protestants have often answered this way. There are three essentials. Believers are gathered, the gospel is preached, 
and the ordinances are celebrated rightly. Believers gathered, the gospel preached, and the ordinances are celebrated rightly. Certainly there's more to tease out in terms of building a healthy local church, but at a minimum those three must be present. Without believers gathering, you you don't have a church. Without the gospel preached, you're left with nothing but a social club and possibly even a cult. And without the ordinances rightly observed, you, you may have a Christian organization and maybe a Bible study at best, but you don't have a church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper mark the visible church and keep her accountable to the gospel. If godly men and women have read the Bible and noticed that the Lord's Supper plays such a central role in the church, it would be wise for us to make sure we're getting it right and also not missing out on something so great. But most importantly, our Lord Jesus commanded us to remember Him by taking the Lord's Supper. As disciples, we want to follow His command rightly. So, let's jump in. We're going to attempt this in three sermons. All I want to cover today is the origin of the Lord's Supper and its purpose. So, we're basically going to answer two uh, questions. Uh, Where did it come from and why do we do it? So let's take the first question about the origin of the Lord's Supper. Where did it come from? Most of us who've, who are familiar with our Bibles uh, or have grown up in a church, we've heard the words uh, of Scripture read prior to eating the Lord's Supper. We know that it came from Jesus. That's why I pointed us first to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is at the table with His disciples in Luke Uh, 22, verse 15, and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is finished in the kingdom of God. Jesus then explains the broken bread as his body given for them and the cup as the new covenant in his blood. And Matthew and Mark provide similar accounts, uh, but only Luke's gospel clarifies that Jesus expected his disciples to repeat what he had done with them. And at the end of verse 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul repeats his, those, the, the words of our Lord in 1 Corinthians 11. Do this in remembrance of me. Baptists have traditionally called the Lord's Supper an ordinance. Uh, And the main reason we call it an ordinance is to highlight that the Lord's Supper was ordained or commanded by the Lord Jesus Himself. The Lord's Supper originated with Jesus and the church was to obey His command until He came again. But, But we must say more. We must say more since Jesus Himself sets the Lord's Supper within the broader storyline of the Old Testament and in particular, the Passover meal. If you read any of the four Gospels, you'll notice a profound repetition of Passover surrounding the Last Supper that Jesus ate with His disciples. So just look at uh, Luke 22, for instance, uh, in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And then verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 8, So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Then verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you 
before I suffer. So Jesus wants us to understand this Last Supper, which eventually becomes the Lord's Supper, in light of Passover. If we fail to grasp what Passover was and how it functioned in Israel, in that, in that Old Covenant community, we'll miss very significant aspects of the Lord's Supper and even more what it means to be a Christian. So let's spend some time on Passover and then, and then we're going to connect it to the, the Lord's Supper. Passover was one of the most significant feasts that defined uh, God's covenant people and shaped their identity. If you recall, you know, there's this massive problem. Israel is enslaved in Egypt and they can do nothing. They have no ability to get themselves out uh, of slavery. But God chose to rescue his people and... Uh, He makes himself a father to Israel, and as a good father, he comes to rescue his son. This is in Exodus 4. God God then sent nine plagues of judgment. But it's not until the tenth plague that Israel experiences their release from captivity. The tenth plague was the death of all the firstborn sons in all the firstborn in Egypt. As part of freeing his people in relation to this final plague of death, God instituted a meal. He instituted the Passover. And it's important to notice that he did not institute anything with the previous nine plagues. He only institutes something with the last plague, which is the decisive plague, the plague of death, that ends up releasing them from their uh, slavery. That's important to remember because God is trying to teach them something, teach the nation of Israel something through this decisive judgment of death, which would end up releasing them in connection with a lamb. So Exodus 12 and 13 tell us a little bit about this Passover meal. Each household was to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice that lamb, being sure not to break any of its bones They were to take the lamb's blood and then paint the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes. And when God passed through the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn, if he saw the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over your household. So the idea being everyone that's standing under the protection of the lamb's blood would escape God's judgment in death. The reason families under the Lamb's blood would not suffer God's judgment in death was that the Passover Lamb made atonement for the people inside the house. No participation in the Passover meant you remained in your sins, and if you remained in your sin, you died. But if you were under the blood, you escaped death. And if you escape death, guess what happened the next day? The Lord liberated you from slavery. So being connected to the Passover lamb meant deliverance from death, death being the result of sin, deliverance from death, and rescue from slavery. But that's not all. The Passover also set Israel apart as God's people 
and for God's service. So the, the whole point of breaking the yoke of slavery was so that Israel could be freed to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord under the Lord's covenant. That's why they eventually go in to uh, the wilderness and at Sinai, God gives them a covenant. That was the primary goal from the get-go. If you read Exodus uh, chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. It's also why God consecrates the firstborn to Himself through the Passover. The, The firstborn represented the type of people that Israel as a whole was meant to be, which is a people set apart for God under His covenant. So you can very well see how such a meal would, would shape the identity of God's people. Every year Israel was supposed to observe the Passover to remember God delivering them from death and freeing them from slavery and setting them apart uh, for himself under his covenant. In fact, Passover is so significant, it begins the calendar year. All their lives were to be built around how God's past deliverance shaped their present status and, deter- and determined their future as a nation. And whenever a new generation would be born and, and ask their parents, you know, what makes this Passover night so special? The parents were to say, it is because of what the Lord did for me, did for me when I came out of Egypt. So every time they ate, the Lord was teaching them to look to His past deliverance in the Exodus And that past deliverance shaped how they viewed themselves in the present, even if they weren't part of that actual generation that came out of of Egypt, because they were linked through the covenant, the Lord's past deliverance becomes their own. They too were now part of God's covenant people. They were trusting in Him. They too were freed from their bondage. It was part of their identity. They too could abide by His covenant. And since he had delivered them before, it gave them great confidence that God was going to deliver them again and again and again in the future. This is why you see the Psalms uh, so full. David or somebody's in such distress. And what are they doing? They're preaching to themselves God's past deliverance of Israel. And it gives them hope for the future deliverance. <clears throat> The Exodus deliverance was so crucial to Israel's salvation that the prophets, whenever they look forward to the future and what the future salvation of Israel would look like, they speak of it in terms of a new Exodus deliverance, an ultimate Exodus, a greater Exodus with a better lamb and a better covenant. Well, eventually we come to Jesus eating the Passover with his disciples. All along the way in the Gospels were given hints that Jesus will die a sacrificial death. Like a lamb, his life will be given to ransom sinners. His blood will atone for their sins. John the Baptist pointed it out right from the get-go. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus comes and he eats the Passover with his disciples and he interprets the elements of that Passover meal in light of his pending death on the cross. So in Luke 22, verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm going to eat this with you before I suffer. And then watch what he does. He starts linking the elements of the meal with 
his sufferings, with his death. Luke 22, verse 19. This bread is my body, which is given for you. In their place, in other words. His death is going to be substitutionary. And this bread represents that, signifies that. Luke 22, verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew's 26, verse 28, says something similar. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is saying these words and linking his death with substitution and sacrifice and linking his death with the ratification of a new covenant. What is going on here? Jesus is bringing the patterns that were set in place by the Passover to their intended goal. To their fulfillment. We, we needed a land that wouldn't just deliver from the temporary plague of death in Egypt. We, we needed a land that would deliver from the eternal plague of death. We needed a land that would undo death altogether. That would, be, that would cause the, the death of death itself. We needed a land that would rescue us not just from bondage to oppressive human rulers. We needed a land that would deliver us from the tyranny of sin itself. We needed a land that would ratify a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins and create a new people set apart for God's service who were changed from the inside out and the law was written on our hearts. That lamb is Jesus Christ. So now with the Passover being fulfilled in Christ, the Passover meal gets gets transformed into a, a, a new meal, into a meal that revolves around Christ. We get a new meal with a new meaning bound up with Jesus' death. No more lambs are necessary since the one true lamb who was about to die, Jesus, is the one to whom all those prior lambs were pointing. He had come. In the same manner that Passover defined God's old covenant community, the Lord's Supper would now define the church, God's new covenant community. The great deliverance that shapes the church is the death and resurrection of Christ. I mean, the resurrection is implied in the Lord's Supper because we eat the supper until He comes again. So this is our great exodus deliverance. Jesus' death and resurrection. It's through Jesus' death that we experience the ultimate exodus deliverance. Deliverance from bondage to sin and set apart as God's new community and headed for a better homeland and a better inheritance in Christ's forever kingdom. Everything we are as a church and will become revolves around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's past deliverance in Christ shapes how we view ourselves in the present and how we continue trusting God to deliver us in the future. And that leads us to the the purpose of the Lord's Supper and to answering our second question You know, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why are we going to eat and drink again today? A very basic answer would be, because Jesus said so. He is Lord. We do what He says or we perish. If if, If He said, do this in remembrance of me, it's rebellion to ignore His commandment. But we also know that every command from the Lord is good for us. It has a purpose to bless us. It's not just a bare 
command, but a command that comes from a loving Lord who blesses his people. His commands have purposes behind them for our good. And I want to mention four of those purposes for the Lord's Supper. First, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to proclaim and remember God's past deliverance in Christ. To proclaim and remember God's past deliverance in Christ. The Lord's Supper is fundamentally proclamation. It's proclamation, not in the sense that we're in the, in the eating of, it, of itself, but also because it's carrying behind it a gospel word that interprets what's going on. It is proclamation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that we need the gospel just as much as the rest of the world needs the gospel. Each time you eat the bread and drink the cup, it's as if each one of you get up in this pulpit and declare to the rest of the people in here the great things that God has done for you. You are broadcasting the finished work of Jesus that crushed the serpent's head, that broke the power of sin and secured your, for you a home in glory. The Lord's Supper does not announce what we have done to get ourselves ready for the table. I'll say that again. The Lord's Supper does not announce what we have done to get ourselves ready for the table. It announces everything Christ has already done and finished to fit us for His table. The righteous died for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. When that proclamation goes forth in our eating the bread and drinking the cup, it it helps us remember God's finished work in Christ and what that means for our lives, for our present identity. Remembrance is a key part of the supper and something the visible proclamation produces in in the community. Luke 22, verse 19, Jesus says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul repeats the same words in 1 Corinthians 11. There's something to remembrance. We may not often think of it, but uh, memory has a powerful effect on our lives. You know, I can smell a fresh, a fresh apple crumb pie coming out of the oven. And I'm taken back 30 years to my mother's kitchen and memories of, of the apple crumb pie. And, and it's tangible. Um, it also shapes my future because I asked my wife to make me one too. And I eat it. There are decisions we make every day based on remembering the past. Something we learned or experienced Something someone else experienced. Something that happened in history that we weren't even there for, but still live our lives according to the realities of those those events that the events in the past created. We make judgments based on what we know from the past, and that shapes our present and our future. In other words, remembering isn't isn't always just a a mere recollection of of, of facts uh, with no effect. Remembering is often life-transforming. The past 
re-enters our present so as to have an effect on our future. Um, when, when, when Peter, this is in Galatians, when Peter tells Paul, hey, as you go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, remember the poor. Peter does not mean that Paul walk out the door and just remember the poor happened to be out there. Right? He meant for that remembrance to move him, to move him to compassion, to move him to action. So his past, his knowledge, his understanding that the poor were there were to play an active role in his present and then shape his future plans in doing something for them. This is the kind of remembrance in mind when we come to the table to remember the Lord's death. So with the supper, when we see the gospel proclaimed as the saints take the supper together, remembering Christ's finished work transforms us. It moves us to action. It affects change in us. It shapes our identity and purpose in life. As we noted earlier, the, 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 the Passover functioned this way in Israel. The Passover reminded Israel of God's past deliverance, and that past deliverance uh, uh, shaped who they were in the present. They were a redeemed people for God, and then that past deliverance also reassured them that God would continue to deliver them in the future. They could trust Him to live for Him uh, and do, do His will because they belonged to Him and He cared for them. In the same way, the Lord's Supper brings the past into our present in order to transform us. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you engage actively in remembering God's past salvation and what it means for you in the present. What does it mean for you in the present? God loved you with a great love and loves you in that He gave up His only Son. You're, You're no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ. When he died, your old self died with him. And when he rose from the dead, your new self was raised with him in the heavenly places. You're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You're no longer enslaved to sin, but you are free to obey God and love others. You're no longer the master. The Lord himself is your master. These kinds of of things define your present. And that remembrance of Christ's death shapes your identity and the kinds of decisions that we make for our future. It also gives us hope for the future. Paul does this as he's reflecting on the past and looking to the future in Romans 8 when he says, He who did not spare his own son in the past, but gave gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, now risen from the dead, freely give us all things in the future? The past deliverance in Christ gives us assurance for the future in the present. God's past deliverance in Christ gives us assurance for the future in the present. Whatever we will face, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, Paul's listing them off in Romans 8, God's past deliverance reassures that He will keep working and working and working for our salvation until the end. And that moves us to spend and be spent for Christ's sake until the Lord comes again. 
A second purpose we celebrate the Lord's Supper is this. To participate in the gospel's benefits and submit to the gospel's demands. To participate in the gospel's benefits and submit to the gospel's demands. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Some of your translation might have sharing or fellowship there in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ. The implied answer is yes. Of course it's a participation in the body and blood of Christ. That's not to say that we eat Jesus' physical body or drink His physical blood. Verse 18 later clarifies the kind of relationship that Paul has in mind. He says, consider the people of Israel. He's, he, uh, are, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He's not saying the priests, by offering the sacrifices, eat the altar. When someone offered a sacrifice and ate of it and participated in the altar, that participation meant that he shared in the benefits of God's provision through the altar. Whether that was God's passing over sins or making peace or or keeping the covenant people in fellowship with himself. The same is meant when Paul speaks of us participating or sharing or having fellowship in the blood and body of Christ. To participate in the blood and body of Christ means that we share in the benefits of what God has achieved through the death of His Son. Benefits like propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against us, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, justification, victory over sin and death, peace with God, adoption, new birth, eternal life, and and on and on the New Testament goes. In the context of the Lord's Supper, we we should also include the benefits of the new covenant. One of the things Jesus says is, this is the new covenant in my blood. What does the new covenant talk about? The forgiveness of sins, of course, but also the law being written on our hearts. Uh, The Holy Spirit being poured into us that that He might dwell in us. Everybody in the community knowing God personally. But these these benefits also produce a particular kind of lifestyle that proves Jesus is is truly Lord of our lives. So Paul will further explain our participation in Christ. And as he does, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, in particular, he's referring to idolatry and and the demonic influences behind the idols here uh, here in 1 Corinthians 10. Idolatry is is demonic and it's part of the evil world system in rebellion against God. And don't just think of terms of, uh, of statues that people are bowing down to. Um, think, think in terms of idolatry like this. Any time that we love the created things above God, 
or in place of God. We surrender to that evil world system. We're reversing what the world is supposed to be, putting the creation over the creator. And it's demonic. The, The Lord's Supper is a continual reminder that we no longer belong to that evil world system. We no longer belong to that world that flips the creation on its head. Just like the Passover reminded Israel that they were no longer slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are no longer slaves to sin and the devil. Jesus is our Lord. The benefits of His death have rescued us and made us a new people. Therefore, by participating in the Lord's Supper, we're we're visibly recommitting ourselves to Jesus' Lordship, to Jesus' new covenant. We're publicly saying that our love affair with the world and its idolatry has ended, and we're now followers of Jesus. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything He did for us. We, We will no longer bow to the gods of sex, money, and power because our hearts have been thrilled with God's glory seen in the face of Jesus Christ. All of our loyalties belong to Him. A third purpose for the Lord's Supper is to renew our commitment to one another in Christ. To renew our commitment to one another in Christ. Table fellowship is some of the closest fellowship. Why do you think there are so many commands in the Bible, to show hospitality to one another. Uh, It's family fellowship. It's the closest fellowship. This is why it's such a big deal when uh, Paul rebukes Peter for separating himself at the table with the Gentiles to go eat with the Jews. I mean, this is is the heart of of sitting down with, with your family, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And So how fitting it is that the Lord would give us a meal to eat together with one another. We, we come to the table as one family. I want you to look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 16 and 17 this time. Uh, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the Lord's Supper is in view. And he reasons this way in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the main assertion, we who are many are one body, and he grounds that assertion in two reasons. One, there's only one bread. The one bread that represents Jesus' body which was given for us. And the second reason is the fact that we all partake of that one bread. We'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks, you know, but one of the reasons that uh, every week, uh, even though you have all these little chicklets up here of bread, um, we, we break one cracker. Um, I want to get a loaf, Dale. Um, We break that one bread to signify, to help maintain the symbolism behind the Lord's Supper that we all are sharing in the the one bread, Christ's body given for us. Uh, 
That's the point that Paul is reflecting on here. It's in our partaking of the one bread that we visibly enact the reality signified by the one bread that we are truly one people with one Lord. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 Now it's true that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into into the universal body of Christ at conversion. But it's also true that we become one local expression of that greater universal body when we partake of this meal together. The Lord's Supper not only represents our unity, it affects and embodies our unity. A lot of times when when people are planning churches, this is how this one was planted as well, uh, and the one in Provo and the one in Oklahoma uh, with Dusty and Kevin, we constituted as a church the first Sunday we shared the Lord's Supper together. So the Lord's Supper not only represents our unity, it embodies our unity. Part of that unity comes through remembering Jesus' words in Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he didn't, he didn't just pour out his, his blood for you as an individual. He poured out his blood for many. For many. So part of taking the supper together is so that we are visibly reminded that Jesus died for that brother over there, for this sister over there, and for every nation, tribe, tongue, and people as we gather around the table together. If all we do is stare at our navels while taking the supper, we risk missing one of the most beautiful aspects of the supper which is namely the embodiment of the many becoming one. As we observed earlier, the Lord's Supper also signals that a new covenant is in place. And being united to Jesus means we participate in a new covenant. And you know what that new covenant teaches? Its main command is you love one another as God in Christ has loved you. This is what John, uh, John 13 speaks about. Jesus is speaking about there. You cannot commit yourself to the Lord of the covenant if you're not willing to follow the covenant. The covenant of love. You cannot have Jesus and despise His people. By renewing our commitment to the new covenant in the Lord's Supper, we renew our commitment to each other. This is... Part of the reason that we uh, sometimes will read our church covenant together before we take the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. We want it to, to remind us to redouble our efforts in, our, in the communion we all share in Christ and our commitment to, to one another in Christ. We'll also see in coming weeks that this is why Paul makes such a big deal in, 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 uh, with, in 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, when they are dividing each other. There's divisions in the church and the rich are getting drunk and the poor are being left to themselves. And, and Paul is uh, on them like a hornet 
they have uh, forgotten the gospel and they have forgotten what the gospel does for their relationships to each other. Lastly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to anticipate Christ's return in glory. It was Jesus himself who said in Luke 22, verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Likewise, after the Last Supper in Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul repeats the same idea in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So in that sense, the Lord's Supper is a prophetic sign. It, it, you just picture somebody pointing to the future every time we take the Lord's Supper. Each time we enjoy the Supper together, we're reassured that Jesus is coming again. He already ratified the new covenant in His blood. Soon He will bring the new covenant promises to their appointed end in a new kingdom that transforms the earth into a cosmic sanctuary and there will be healing for all the nations as they worship Christ together. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That passage in Revelation 19, it builds on, on all the other passages in Scripture that characterize the coming kingdom in terms of just this enormous wedding banquet. And, and what Zechariah calls seasons of joy and gladness and, and cheerful feasts. There's a sense in which the Lord's Supper has weight and gravity to it. But there's also a sense in which we should laugh together when we take this meal. We should laugh together knowing that Christ has secured the victory. And that His kingdom is sure to come. It is a cheerful feast as well. People will come from east and west, it says, and from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Isaiah 25 says that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Going to have to settle for grape juice right now. The wine is coming though. It's really good. And it says, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord, God, will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has Spoken, And you know that work has already begun because the resurrection of Christ has begun. This is the day the church waits for and prays for and longs for. It's the day Jesus will bring for us when He returns. Not everybody will get to participate in that final glorious feast. Jesus says that some will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 19 also says that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God against the nations who despised Him. But for all of those who trust in Christ, 
who are united to Him in communion, in relationship with Him by faith. The day of His return will be our salvation. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus drank the cup. This is why He calls it the cup. This cup, every time you see it, every time we lift it up, every time we bless it and give thanks to God, we should think, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we might drink from the cup of God's blessings. Those blessings reach their climax when He, be, when he comes again for us. And that's a day worth singing about. With these purposes in mind, we're going to sing. Aaron and Ashley, y'all could go ahead and come forward to to lead us into the supper with a song. But with these four purposes in mind, as you you come to the table each Sunday, I want you to, to consider looking backwards, looking upwards to God, looking around, And looking forward. I want you to look backwards to God's past deliverance in Christ. I want you to look upwards to God and receive from Him the blessings that are truly there for us through the blood of Christ. I want you to look around at all the others that Jesus has rescued and has brought to the table with you. And I want you to look forward to your coming Redeemer who will soon come. Um, Since I've preached on the Lord's Supper today, we're not going to go into another explanation at the table. Um, I'm just going to lead us into the supper after the song. And so on the last stanza, would the folks who are serving the supper please come down uh, during that time. I just, uh, I just ask that, that if you are a member of this church or a baptized member in good standing uh, with another gospel preaching church, then you are most welcome to join us at this table. If that's not true of you, then please refrain from eating and drinking today. But that's not to say that you would refrain forever. Our our desire is that you would trust in the Lord and be part of His people, that you would submit to Jesus, and that you would find a place at His table with the rest of us who do not deserve to be here. Brother?